Uh, Turning your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And um, uh, we'll start reading at verse 18. Romans 1, uh, verse 18. And this is God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to a dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless." Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, one of the complexities of being uh, in in the uh, vocational ministry and going on vacation is this. If you... um, if you go on vacation before a returning Sunday, uh, that returning Sunday is looming out there. So, uh, you know, when I come back in town, we drove back yesterday, the Sunday already had to be planned, and the charts already had to be scribbled on and distributed, and recording had to be sent out, and the team already had to be assembled. And, and then the other complexity is, uh, at some point, you've got to write a sermon. So it just doesn't magically appear. You got, if, you're, if you're on vacation, you've got to come back in and you've got this thing hanging over. So um, I did some studying on the beach. Actually, I did all my reading on the beach uh, or in the, in the condo. And then uh, my wife was kind enough to take the wheel of the car. Um, just kidding. And uh, only kidding. <laughs> she was kind enough to do that. In fact, she did that Friday and then she did it Saturday too. And I, I took my laptop and I wrote this in the car. And uh, as, we were, as we were flying through some town uh, on Friday, I got all excited, and I told her, uh, look at this church sign. We passed this church sign, and um, it's, uh, it's now our main point. And our main point is this. We don't change the message. The message changes us. 
Wasn't that somewhere in Alabama or something? Some little church sign? Isn't that good? Oh, you saw it too? No. Oh, you're digging it? No, I'm wondering about Malabama. Oh, Alabama? Oh. Did I say Malabama? I can never keep them straight. Um, But you like that? We don't change the message. The message changes us. That really is uh, the thrust of Romans 1. And our passage has more to do with an overarching theme than an articulation of one particular sin. Now, as you know, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the six or seven spots in the Bible that inform us as to God's view of homosexuality, God's uh, view for healthy human sexuality. And as sensitive pastors everywhere are quick to point out, um, uh, we're fools if we don't think that all sin is sin. All sin is sin. Um, and we're fools if we, if we ever feel like we can point a finger at someone else's sin and say, well, at least I'm not that, or at least I haven't engaged in that. All sin is sin. All sin makes God angry. There's a big long list of sins in this passage. Um, so um, we're fools if we say homosexuality is this ultimate sin um, and uh, that uh, somehow somebody's more guilty than us. Okay, so, so pastors have been very careful to point that out. I'm very careful to point it out. Sin is sin is sin is sin. In fact, you're going to see a, a video of Dr. Young, and, and it's, it's confusing at first because he rushes through it. He says, uh, homos- he says uh, homosexuality is sin no more. And, and you go, what? What? Uh, he, 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 he's saying, and you'll, he'll, he makes it clear in the seconds to come, but he says homosexuality is sin and no more. But it is sin. He's saying that homosexuality is only sin. Well, that's a hard thing to say. That's a big thing to say. But he's saying you can't just elevate one thing over another. So all that to say, um, sin is sin. Uh, we are not to point our finger at someone else. In fact, in chapter 2, there's, there's uh, uh, comments about judging others and, and stuff coming up. But all to say, um, there is something about this particular sin that is profound, and it's profound in the mind of the writer of the book of Romans. Um, in a sense, it's a summary of what it is to rebel against a creator. Uh, when the assault is on humanity itself, when the assault, uh, the assault is on um, an individual person, when the assault is on a distinct biology if that's denied, well, what's ultimately being denied is the sovereign uh, consummate right of the creator to say, this is how I made things, this is how I want them to be. That's the point of Romans 1, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we, uh, oh, I didn't do my thing. We, there it is, don't change the message, the message changes us. So let's look at our uh, first of three points. I'm trying to hook myself uh, to a passage as we study this uh, topic. I kind of like to do that. So our first point is God's justified wrath. If you look at verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, to understand that, as well as really the first three chapters of Romans and the whole book of Romans, you've got to view the thing in context, all right? So in verse 15, uh, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Uh, He's eager to preach the gospel. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, all right? So the issue you see, what Paul is spelling out, is salvation, He's uh, giving us the, the groundwork for salvation. He'll apply it in chapter 12 and on, but he's giving us the, the foundation for understanding what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ in salvation, all right? 
So far from this being a proof text where we just go to it and pick out the part that we want and argue with our friends uh, and try to prove something to our family members or dissenters or whatever, um, the issue at hand is salvation. And one scholar I was reading uh, described salvation this way. I thought this was pretty uh, awesome. Um, To be emancipated from the greatest evil and be placed in possession of the greatest good. Isn't that a good definition of being rescued from the wrath of God uh, because of sin? Emancipation, in other words, is more than the idea of freedom. It's actual freedom. It's being set free from something. Now, what are we being set free from? Well, notice the close relationship between salvation and righteousness. The Bible is is quick to link those, salvation and righteousness. Look at verse... um, Uh, Yeah, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look at verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, all right? So salvation and righteousness hooked um, in in the mind of the Holy Spirit of God. Here's some verses from the prophet Isaiah. I bring near my righteousness and my salvation shall not tarry. You see how the prophet puts those together? Here's another one from uh, Isaiah. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the people. My salvation will be forever. My righteousness will not diminish. Salvation, righteousness, they they can't be separated. Um, Isaiah 61.10, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's wrapped me in a garment of salvation. Of righteousness. And so salvation and righteousness are interconnected, and that means that God must also serve as judge, which Isaiah writes in there too. My arms will judge the people. So God is the one who determines what is right and wrong, what is just and not, what is righteous and unrighteous. He is the one who determines that for the, crea- uh, the, the humanity he created. And uh, where there's rebellion from his design, that's what sin is, and that's where we. Uh, face his righteous and deserved wrath. Verse 16 again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Um, The the, um, New Living Translation says a very interesting thing in verse 18. Um, It says, you know, ours says the wrath of God is revealed. Uh, New Living Translation says that God shows his anger. God shows his anger. And, and whatever translation you read, you'll, you'll send, if you study it, you'll see that God, it, the, the idea is in the now. It's not just some future, future judgment, but God is angry with sin now. He hates sin now. He's offended in the now. The wrath of God is revealed. Uh, he now uh, is, is uh, angry about it. Now, you remember the last, the last few times we were together, I said that if you start with uh, God's activity. If you, if, you, if you approach the issue of homosexuality in our culture and you start with God's activity, what God has done, what God has made, if that's where you start, that's probably where you're going to end up in your, in your opinion. However, if you start with a story, if you start with a sadness or a life or an experience, if you start with a story, then you're probably going to end up back in, in story mode. It's going to take you down a wrong path. If you start with Genesis 1-1 and you say, in the beginning God created, well then you're under the book and you're under the authority and you say, what God, what do you have for me? What is truth? What is your truth? Define your truth. 
If you start with a story or an experience or something you've observed or some heartache, as, as real as those things can be, as touching as, those, as complex as they can be, um, it, it can take you down twisty, turny roads. And I'll tell you, um, when, you read, when you read books by progressives or revisionists, as, as, as uh, they're called, when, when, you, when they're trying to take the scriptures and say, yeah, I know you, I know you, know you, what you, I know you thought you know what this meant, but well, here's what it really means. Now, those are the revisionists. If, if you uh, read any of those, they always start with stories, sad stories, uh, heartache stories, 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 stories that pull you in, that, that, that get your heart kind of cooked up, but then you're not seeing things clearly anymore. In the beginning, God created. That's the place to start. And the stakes are very high. So the place to start concerning the issue of homosexuality is to say, what is God's truth? Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You either, you either bend to it or you try to suppress it. Um, now, application for your life, per the Bible, a man or woman is uh, in, a, in one or two states. We either yield to the truth, accept the truth, seek the truth, or we want to suppress the truth. We want to say, no, 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 that doesn't apply. Uh, wait a minute, that, that, uh, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't reconcile with what I, I wish this would say. Uh, we either submit to it or we resist it. And if we resist it, that means we're wriggling out from underneath the authority of it. That's what suppression of truth is. And so just as um, salvation and righteousness are inherently linked, so is unrighteousness and God's wrath and the suppression of truth. That's, that's, that's the whole point of the cross is to rescue from that. All right? That behind us. Let's move on. Our second point, exchanging right for wrong. Now, right away, friends, if, if you just study this passage, in fact, I was kind of, you know, it's really, it's really cool when you read the Bible and you make some notes and you kind of you peck away in the, in the passenger seat of the car um, on your computer um, and then you see, you see somebody else has written the same thing that you just wrote down. It's pretty refreshing, actually. Um, but it, this is not hard to see. Look at verse 23. Um, yeah, uh, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and here it is, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Right? So the people exchange truth for idols. Right? That's basically what that's saying in verse 23. The, the, they claiming to be the wise, they became fools. They exchanged truth for idols. Look at verse 25. Um, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Uh, look at verse 26. Uh, God gave them up to a dishonorable passage and so on. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So you've got... Three things, three, three, three things that should ring as you, as you look at this passage. You go, oh, wait a minute, that's very interesting. It says the same thing in the same way. Um, people exchanging truth for idols, people exchanging truth for a lie, people exchanging what is natural for what is unnatural. They exchange them. It seems to be, seems to be a literary thrust, doesn't it? And guess what happens in each of those instances? Verse 25, God Gave them up. Verse 26, God, excuse me, 24, God, tw- God gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. You exchange truth for something else. 
God gave them up. They exchanged truth for something else. God gave them up. And then this, in this thing that, that addresses our issue here today, the, the, the women, in fact, some, I think the NIV says, even the women, that, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty big statement. When, when a culture, when you, when you look around the culture, you go, oh, yeah, I know men in prison uh, do things, but, uh, but even the women in the culture, when even the women fall to this behavior, um, the, the culture is in huge trouble. Uh, God gives them up. And so when, when progressives or non-affirmers, as they, as they might be called, um, clunk you on the head like Mo with Bible verses, um, and they say, well, it really meant this, it really meant this. Remember, not to move in the context is to make a tragic error. And the context is a gospel context. The idea that people uh, exchange truth for a lie, truth for idols, natural for what is unnatural, that is rebellion against the creator. That's what sin is. Now, uh, one of the um, most outspoken uh, revisionists out there, his name is Matthew Vines, and uh, he's written a book that's a big hot seller, and everybody has read that thing, and, and, uh, and uh, cl- they, they clutch it. Um, it's so significant in this discussion. But he said this, um, and listen, he and others ag- agree that Romans 1 is the most explicit um, uh, condemnation of homosexual behavior uh, as sin in the Bible. That's agreed on on both sides. It's, it's a hard passage uh, for, for the other side to think about because they go, gosh, that's pretty clear. I mean, exchanging natural relations, uh, men giving up their natural relationships, natural relations with women consumed with passion, pa- uh, passion for one another. I mean, it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? It's a problem for the revisionists. Everybody admits that. But here's what he said. This Matthew Vines guy. He said, the most significant Bible passage in this debate is this. It's the longest reference to same-sex behavior in Scripture, and it's in the New Testament. So that's, a, that's another biggie. It's not some Old Testament law that, that uh, you can kind of brush away and go, well, does that really apply anymore? And let's talk about law and all that. It's in the New Testament. It's written by the Apostle Paul. It's a biggie. You got to do something with it. Now, here's a question asked by that same author. All right? So um, they use a lot of the same terminology that I use. You know, we got to look at the context. We got to think about the original hearer. We got we to gotta, uh, view it as the way the original readers would hear it. You know, it was written by a person to a specific audience and so on. And so he asked this question. And um, what do you think about this question? What we need to ask is, is that a faithful application of the text? All right, because this is very clear, isn't it? This seems to condemn homosexual behavior, does it not? Does it seem to condemn it very clearly? It does, very clearly, very explicitly. Every side agrees on that. It's very clear. It's trouble for the revisionists. And so he says, he asks this question. What we need to ask is, is that, is, that, is what we're taking away from this a faithful application of the text? Now, I would say that that is a wonderful question. Yeah, I, I asked that question when I approached the Scriptures. But that's not exactly how he put it. Here's how he really put it. What we need to ask is, is that a faithful application of the text today? Now, do you see how insidious that is? That right there, if you see anybody who writes a book about anything about the Scriptures, and you see something like that, that squiggles, squaggles, and gives this license to, to, basically, you can do anything you want with the whole Bible, if you put it that way. Is it a faithful application of the text today? 
Oh, that's insidious, friends. That's reason to throw the whole book out and everything that man would ever teach. If you ever hear me say that, leave. That's, that's the problem, friends. Um, it's, 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 it's an insidious problem. And that's also the reason that when you read this guy's chapter on this, this passage, it's 21 pages long. And if you read the very, 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 very longest chapter of anybody else, it's eight pages long. Because you don't need to get squiggle-squaggle and do all kinds of crazy gymnastics to make the passage say what you wish it would say. And so the revisionists or the progressives or however you would say, the people who are saying, oh, yes, um, we, we see what it says, but does it really mean what, we think, what you guys think it means? All right? The revisionists would sum up the problem in Romans 1 like this. They would say, the sin against which Paul preached was excessive passion. Too much passion. And by the way, I have to correct something, not correct something. I have to make something clear from, I don't know, three weeks ago or so. Or so. When I was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, I can't remember who it was, but somebody stopped me in the hall. It happens all the time. Uh, Tim, I was telling Timmy about it. it. It happens all the time. People will stop me and they'll say, I'll never forget what you said five years ago. You said, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, ah, that's the opposite of what I said. Uh, the, uh, I get quoted all the time. Oh, you said blah, blah. I wrote it down and I look at it and I'm like, I know I didn't say that. Do I, do I remember everything I ever said? Yes. No, no, I don't. I don't. But, I, but pretty close I do. Uh, and I know when I wouldn't... Uh, anyway, all to say, the, the, what, what the revisionists will do with the Sodom and Gomorrah situation is they'll, re, they'll, they'll reduce it down to this. They'll say, well, the real issue was lack of hospitality. I mean, sure, there was homosexual gang rape, but be a little more hospitable. <laughs> okay, that's not the point. That's not what Jesus was saying is, oh, they weren't hospitable enough. That's not, that's not what Jesus was saying. Whoever said, I'll never forget what you said, and that, that was the problem. It's not that. It's not that, all right? So it's not just a reduction. This Romans 1 is not a reduction of just people being too passionate. And what they do is they, they look at, oh, where is that? Um, um, oh, the word, pa- oh, I have it written down here somewhere later in my notes, but it, it, it it pops up. The word passion pops up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, t- verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Uh, verse 27. Uh, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And so they go, aha, our escape hatch. They're too passionate. Just too passionate. Uh, and so basically what they're saying, they're, to, to whittle their view down, they were saying something like, if a gay man had straight sex, too passionate. Um, if, uh, if a straight couple just went at it like crazy, don't be too passionate. You know, don't overeat. Don't be too passionate about this. You shouldn't let your passions run away from you. When you let your passions run away from you, uh, you, you indulge and you indulge and, that you can, and, and that's sin. And so that's, that's a reduction of, of their view that it's just an issue of being uh, excessively passionate. Um, if a straight man had gay sex, too passionate, way too passionate. Get back to your camp. That's it. That's it. That's the, that's the basic, the, basically the argument. And of course, there, there's, that, there's that today emphasis. You know that question I showed you, that today? The other thing is they'll say is, well, what we now know, you know, today. You know, back then they were stupid, 
But what we now know, we know with the DNA and the whatnot and the phones and everything, what we now know, now we know uh, that we got to take this in a different way, and I'll point out how the, you know, people thought the world was flat and all that kind of stuff. All right, that's, that's their escape hatch. But friends, um, and like I say, they use the same terminology I use. They talk about context. They'll talk about original hearers and all that kind of things. But, but the one thing that they don't ever mention is the Holy Spirit of God. They'll say, well, Paul was under these influences, and he was in this culture, and, and uh, he was uh, addressing this culture, and, uh, and oh, Caligula, by the way, Caligula, uh, and all, all that, and there's all this excess passion and all that stuff. But guess what, friends? Who, who ultimately wrote the Scriptures? The Holy Spirit. The Bible's not written by people. The Bible's written by God's use of people, but who penned the Holy, who's penned Bible? The Holy Spirit penned, penned the Holy Book. So Paul wasn't imprisoned by his culture, defective in his instruction. God himself is writing a book that transcends cultures and times, and we don't have to go, well, now, what we've learned now about human sexuality, oh, all the rules have changed. A dude's dude's a lady to lady. You go to the Genesis creation account, uh, God makes a man, he makes a lady. He says, you're going to have a one flesh union, and... Uh, and that one flesh union is profound, it's different, it's, it's, it's even deeper than being blood relatives, it's this amazing thing. Um, it's uh, it's complementary, not just uh, uh, anatomically, but uh, as, as essential human beings brought together uniquely and differently into this one new union. That's God's plan, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, and uh, you know, this idea of what's natural and unnatural. Revisionists will say that uh, the word nature, nature, doesn't show up in the creation account. You go to Genesis and the word nature's not in there. No, no, it's not. Um, and they'll say, well, it's wrong to keep dragging the idea of natural and unnatural into the, the argument of a, a one flesh male female union, right? But friends, look at verse 20. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. You think that's on Paul's mind in his argument, his salvation gospel argument, what, in his de- definition of rebellion before he tells us about what Christ has come to do um, since the creation of the world? What about verse 25? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's heavy on the writer's mind. Um, verse 23, um, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re- resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Does that sound like language of the creation account in Genesis? It sure does. Creation, creation, creation. How about this? This sounds like the Genesis account. In uh, verse 25, you've got a lie. In verse 27, you've got shame. In verse 32, you've got uh, uh, people deserving of the punishment of death. Does that not sound like the fall? Yes, it echoes Genesis. Um, that last trio clearly chimes along with Genesis in the creation account. All right? So application for your life. What follows in verses 29 through 30 is a big long list of sins. Um, I mean, big long list of sins. Uh, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and so on. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, so on and so on. Uh, I, I, there's 21-ish in there. That's a, that's a lot of sins listed, it's, but it's hardly comprehensive if you believe what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that God looks uh, onto, the, onto the heart. 
But what it does portray is rebellion against design, this long list of sins. Rebellion against design. Rebellion against the creature, this long list of sins. And uh, it's at least significant then, ladies and gentlemen, if you've got this big long list of what it is to rebel against the the creator, this big long list of sins, isn't it significant that prior to that list, a lot of scriptural real estate has been given to this one issue of homosexuality? Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's not just tucked in. It's beforehand, and it takes up a big hunk of the text. Now, why? Well, as I said on the front end, sin is sin. Rebellion against God makes God angry, righteously angry. It makes us deserving of punishment. It's true. All right? So we don't get to say, well, I'm not as bad as you. Oh, that, that is not understanding grace, friends. All right? But it is it is important that this takes up a big hunk of real estate, um, and I think it's because it's a summary. It's a vivid summary of what it is to rebel against the Creator. It's a way of saying, you can't tell me how to live. And I'll tell you this, depending on, depending on where I am and who God has brought into a room on any given day or if I'm back in youth or whatever, I mean, if you mention this, passage, if you mention this topic, you see people seize up, and, and there, there's almost a, that's wrong. Uh, anytime you, anytime, I'll tell you what, go teach, go teach senior high sometime. It's frightening. Um, they, um, there's this, you can't tell me. No one's going to tell me. It's wrong for anyone to say, this is how you're supposed to live, or this is how you're not supposed to live. It doesn't matter what your source is. It's wrong. It's not wrong, ladies and gentlemen. This is what's, the Bible's what's right. God's will is what's right. What, what, God, what God has created, his design, the, the way he wants it to function, that's what's right. There is a right and wrong. That's what's right. And what uh, Kevin DeYoung says is that homosexual practice is an example on a horizontal plane of our vertical rebellion against God. I think that's pretty well said. That can be said about a great many sins. All sins, <laughs> a, a horizontal re- rebellion, right? A, a horizontal example of a re- re- vertical rebellion. But uh, this is a very specific thing because it's an assault on personhood. All right, our last point. Um, Psalm 1, and not in a good way. Uh, look at verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die... They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, one of the things um, I bet you'll hear Rosaria Butterfield say is that she was an activist. Uh, did you know that? I mean, w- w- um, she was a, an activist, uh, a proponent of the LGBTQ community. In fact, even that term, LGBT community, it's a, it's a community, um, and uh, she was a, an activist in it and often had people in her homes and they would talk about the issues and how to, how to move their cause forward and all that kind of stuff. We'll turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 1. This will be familiar to a lot of you, most of you. Psalm uh, 1. And uh, while you find that, I'll read the first and refreshing half. Blessed is the man. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now those are, those are stalwart, comforting, powerful words to the soul, right? But don't miss, you know, if you flip the whole thing in the negative, you, you've got, you've got a, a blessed person um, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers, okay? The opposite of that, there's another group of people who do. They do walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do stand in the way of the sinners. They do sit in the seat of the scoffers. Um, what's significant about that, that, that terminology is this. Notice that, I guess it's just a habit from me having bad knees, but I, I sit in this class to teach. I, I've gone years where I stood, and I've gone years where I, I've sat, okay? Um, but usually preachers are standing up. You know, that's kind of the, the teaching posture, right? Not, not in old-timey times. The rabbi, the teacher, the instructor would sit and instruct disciples or students. And so the idea here is a man uh, who is blessed walks not in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stop or stand, pause, exist in the way of sinners, and then he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Not so the wicked. The wicked, not only do they walk in the counsel of the wicked, live in it, but they stand and they're in the community of it and they take a seat and they say, come along with me. And ladies and gentlemen, that's one of the reasons that Jesus was so hard on um, professional clergy of his day. He was always tender uh, with the lambs, but he was tough on the professional clergy. And I have been too. I'm tough on leaders of world religion. Um, And I make no mistakes of it. I make fun of their costumes. Um, uh, I make fun of what they say when they get all ecumenical and they, oh, hey, I got a pointy hat and I got a black thing and I'm this and I got a sash and all these things, all these little ornaments. I make fun of it. You know why? Because they're leading people into the abyss. I got no problem saying those guys are jokers. Don't trust them. They're fools. They're liars. And I wouldn't say that about their followers, but I'll say it about the leadership because that's what Jesus would do too. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that, that's, that's the idea of verse 32 in our passage. Um, uh, uh, oh, yeah, here it is. Oh, hang on. Ugh, Romans 1. Where'd you go? Yeah. Um, Though they knew God's decree, those who practice such things deserve to die, but they do not do them, but they give approval. Not only do they do them, they give approval to those who practice uh, them. That's sitting in the seat the posture of teaching. And that's why um, this, this whole thing ends with this, this scary note, okay? But, but there's, there's this great optimism too, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the gospel is the context, remember? The gospel's the context. Salvation is the context. Anybody, no matter how deep, dark, complex, terrible, hard to understand their sin is, can be rescued. I got one more illustration from our drive home. And I think Tammy was driving again with the raccoon on the, mo- on the, the uh, mobile, that big, long bridge. So we, we visited her, her, her brother, right? So we didn't come the short way home. So we ended up on the mobile, the long, that long, long bridge, right? It's long. And, you know, I've never really re- realized how long it was, but I'm in the passenger seat going, wow, this is a long bridge. And uh, so it was bright sun. It was hot. And uh, we passed a dead raccoon on that bridge. And uh, 
and I, it just kind of caught my eye. And I, you know, like I say, she was kind enough to drive, and I'm in the passenger seat, and I'm like, hey, look at that raccoon. And I'm, like, I'm processing this raccoon. He hadn't been hit. I think he just, like, died. Uh, I think he got a walking on that bridge. He's like, boop, 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 boop. You know, he gets halfway down that bridge. He's like, huh, this is a long way. And I think he just, I think he cooked out there. I think it was hot. There's no water. And that thing just expired on that big, long piece of cement. And uh, so here I am in the passenger seat going, and I'm like, there's water right here right here. And not just like big open water, but some swampy stuff. There's, it, it, that bridge goes over all kinds of stuff I've never noticed before. And I'm like, here's this raccoon in this dry, hot, desolate highway. But life is right there. It's right there. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I just... I just I see the gospel in so many things that I, I saw it in that dead raccoon. Um, I'm like, you know, folks, the issue of homosexuality is so much greater than the issue itself. It's, it, it comes down to God's sovereign, supreme, unquestionable right to what he has made. He is the creator. He says, I want it to be this way. And if we shake our fist and we rebel against him, it only puts us on a hot, desolate highway when life is right there. So I just, I encourage you, and I encourage any listener, wherever you are on an app, or if it's 10 years from now, or 50 and I'm dead, and you stumble on this message, I just beseech you. Um, Jesus Christ came to this earth to live a perfect life that you couldn't live. You ever felt shame? We've all felt shame. You ever regretted things? We all regret things. Why? It's because of this imprint God's put on our life. He gives us a conscience, everybody. And we have enough information about him just by what he's made to know something of him, of his, of his eternal nature, his divine attributes. And, and it's, a, it's a call to all humanity to say, submit to this God. I know it's complex. I know the whole issue of homosexuality is complex and even more complex than it ever was before. I, I, and I, I, I firmly believe that, especially with the introduction of the internet and the, the spreading of information and ideas and pictures and videos and all that. It, it's, it's, it's intensified the whole thing. I know it's complex. But we are born in sin, and God knows this and sent the Savior to deliver us. So receive the Lord of glory. Accept that Jesus died for you on the cross that you might be given life where there was none before. It's right there. Don't die on the, on the highway. Let's pray. Righteous Father, we come before you and we uh, understand that salvation and righteousness are linked. Um, that, that to be in your presence is is to be made clean enough to be in your presence. And that's not by work that we do. It's not by trying our very hardest uh, to be the best person we can be. It is the gift of eternal life that you've given to your creation only in Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. And so my prayer, Lord, is that you would um, make souls alive, that you would make eyes see and ears hear and spirits receive the great gift of eternal life provided by you in Jesus' name. Uh, we pray it. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Catch you next time.
On the who? That, or potatoes foster. 